recording right now. Here we go. Uh, welcome to another... Oh, I didn't get your last name. I'm so sorry. Oh, that's okay. It's Wheeler K. Aaron Wheeler K. Aaron Wheeler K. Okay. Welcome to another episode of The Artistic Director. I'm sitting here with Aaron Wheeler K. Uh, Aaron, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks. Um, so can you give a brief history for the listener that's not familiar with you uh, of yourself in the movement theater world or the theatrical realm uh, that led you to being the creative director of Echo Theater Company? Is yeah. Echo Theater Company correct? Okay. I, I didn't know if it was like the space was Echo or, but anyways. Both. Yeah, both. Sure. So uh, I'm a native of Portland, Oregon, and I was a, a child actor. And in high school and middle school, I got free dance classes through public school. So I got really interested in, in dance, and I went to study concert dance in New York uh, at the Alvin Ailey School. And then I came home and I found a job in this theater uh, working for a company at, uh, that was called Do Jump at the time, and they s specialized in hybridizing um, different performance disciplines into one seamless theater event. And a lot of that discipline uh, came from circus arts, so acrobatics, partner acrobatics, uh, low-flying trapeze and other aerial arts and integrating those with storytelling and narrative integrating those with any tool to help get the job done so that creative director who I apprenticed under really um, Robin Lane she used choral work she would use actors in collaboration with acrobats and just built these spectacular pieces of theater so that's a tradition I kind of came up in and found I really liked the marriage of um, narrative and physical expression. Mm -hmm. um, also kind of drawing on uh, other narrative physical techniques like clowning and things like that, that, that where the language isn't the key way you communicate the idea. Yeah. But also never learn, like never really giving up um, language either, also keeping that in the toolkit. Yeah, uh, and then when did you assume the role of creative director? Right, so as I worked for that company um, and there were opportunities to contribute choreography or uh, contribute to the, it was a very collaborative ensemble and so a lot of opportunity for exploration of any given skill set. So I began to explore direction and then um, got involved in, in directing youth performance companies here. So as, as part of our theater, a big bulk of our income and um, identity in the community is as a school. So I apprenticed as a teacher in teaching aerial arts um, and partner acrobatics and ensemble theater skills all in one class. And we ended up with a group of students who were really enthusiastic and wanted to produce work and so we now have these by audition companies. Um, we have a group that is like 8 to 14 year olds and a group that's like 14 to 18 year olds. So I apprenticed as a co-director of those companies, hybridizing all these skills together to produce work, um, and also learning how to glean from participants meaning, what's meaningful to them. So working with the students, not only on producing work, but on producing, you know, we have these, all these expressive tools at our, um, at our, in reach, and then what, what do we want to say with them? They're also trying to cultivate the voice and what's important. So over the course of doing that, I came to discover some of what was really important to me and so I got the opportunity about four or five years ago to helm a project myself that would be for professional production and um, so I did and then I just uh, was able to be offered a job by the board of this organization when uh, the creative director left. She was the artistic director at the time and when I got the job we titled it creative director because I was also involved a lot in um, developing curriculum with the school or if a 
an organization came and said, hey, we're teaching a bunch of first graders and we want to do rhythm, rhyme, and pattern. Can you develop curriculum using circus arts? So I was using my creative skills to kind of build things besides shows. Um, and so, but uh, we've continued to produce new work every year um, that continues to, in this vein of hybridized uh, theater and also trying to be accessible to lots of different audience types and members. And so um, we found that when you have young people, elders, people of all ages in the audience, like little kids will give old people permission to laugh in a way that they might not if you oh, just yeah. had a group of elders. And so like when you put these mixed communities together in the audience, you also find more common ground or something. There's this oh, neat no. permission that happens. You know, so it's part of the magic of theater that you get groups of people in temporary community kind of vibing together. Yeah. So that's always been part of the interest to me is like, I'm really interested in connecting with the audience and potentially yeah. having them connect to each other somehow through the experience. Yeah, uh, Perfect. So I like to, my first question I ask every single guest is a big ambiguous question. Yeah. Uh, so feel free to answer it in any way, shape or form uh, that you wish. But the question is simply, what is your artistic direction? What is my artistic direction? Um, right now, my artistic direction is inclusion. It's towards inclusivity and adaptation and adaptability. And in specific, um, over the last year and a half, I've been um, studying how to do inclusive dance. So there's a, a, a form called danceability that I got certified in, which basically states that anybody can dance, regardless of uh, cognitive or physical limitations, lack of mobility, lack of clear um, understanding cause and effect, you can still be in relationship with each other through movement. And that's led us to examine the rhetoric of our organization, which has been really, we'll teach anybody um, to really be much more inclusive about who those bodies are. And so right now in my artistic work, I'm trying to find um, people that don't share my lived experience or that I don't have the same lived experience and use the ensemble and devised method of theater to find uh, areas of common importance to explore artistically. Yeah, that's really important. That's really incredible also. Yeah, it's been really rewarding too. And you have some, you, when you think of a movement theater, you have some assumptions of just like the type of person that's going to be here and like what, what's happening. It's really um, like, that's amazing to hear. Yeah, <laughs> and especially in the world of circus, uh, which we're so, we're so, we're so Venn diagrammed overlapped with, you know, <laughs> which is, is, um, has not only a history of accepting marginalized uh, people, especially in when, I mean, theater has done this too, but um, in the in the older thinking about circus where you had sideshows, like some of the only places people could get employed that otherwise would be, you know, shunned or not available to people yeah. in society. And it was imperfect, I think, in terms of our history at displaying people is not, yeah. you know, is fraught. Could be called exploitive exactly, by Exactly, yeah. totally. Yeah. And at the same time, um, circuses became families for, for people. It's a, a, ch a chosen family or um, a family you find. So, um, so with that history in mind of, of marginalized people having space for them and their expression, I think there's a great there's a great historical precedent set up for, um, for alternate ways of being. However, circuses also typically fetishizes athleticism and kind of really um, celebrates unique physical achievements um, 
and for all that that is good, it can be, um, for my mind, a kind of monotonous message. Even though it's a beautiful and, and striking one over and over again, it also becomes, um, the story often is, look what is possible. And I think that's a great, that's a great story to explore. Um, and I guess what I'm, what I'm interested in is, um, is less about spectacle which I think circus does really well, yeah. and more about communication of an expressive idea, uh, which yeah. I think theater does really well. Yeah, so so how, how do you explore that through movement? How do you explore, because I think the movement in, cell, in and of itself is a spectacle. Right, well, yes. So I had a piano teacher once who said, you know, you can't, you can't really learn this piece of music without learning it as a dance for your fingers. You know, like everything oh. is movement based. You can't play the saxophone without moving. Yeah. And when I studied voice um, later in life, I, I did better at it when I connected to it as a physical discipline and really like, oh, I do know how to learn physical things. And so there, there isn't really a way of being that isn't physical. <laughs> there isn't a discipline you can study that doesn't require you to hone your physical discipline. And that said, I think actors do spend a fair amount of time um, living in the body in a way that allows them to be present. But in terms of sp specifically expressing things, if you go beyond uh, body language, which we're all interpreting whether we're aware of it or not, mm -hmm. um, and giving information through it, when you start to look at intentional relationships, we're always in physical relationship to one another. And then what I think is interesting is when we're intentional about that and how does that communicate so if I have two and and we do this kind of exercise with our students if I have two performers on stage and they're very far from each other I my pattern recognition machine that is my brain is going to start trying to make sense of that and make a story and if one approaches the other I'm getting all sorts of information from myself about what I think that means so just starting from that principle that the physical relationships of the performers are really already communicating now to give an example of work that was really, really physical and derived from a physical place, um, we did a show a couple years ago uh, entitled Superhero Old Folks Home. And so <laughs> I, I can see from your smile that you, yeah. you get, not everybody gets it from the title, yeah. but so obviously there's this idea of our elders and their stories and yeah. somehow, you know, and culturally our elders get boxed up with each other and sort of like assume that they don't think about or talk about certain subjects yeah. anymore and they're, they're kind of gone to us even though they have these from their perspective, heroic stories of yeah. their lives. So, so in, in physicalizing that and bringing that to the stage, um, it was important to me and also the people that I was working with to, to stay in this really physical space. Um, I work with a lot of aerialists and acrobats, and so um, to provide a means by which a memory could come to life, we could, we could populate these memories with young physically um, physically talented or capable or whatever the word <laughs> that fits uh, that could do do for the uh, elder voices in the show what the, the voices could do but couldn't display mm -hmm. so we used um, we used the back wall of the theater and tethered dancers to it from points up above so they could run along the surface of the wall oh, that's really and cool. ascend and descend the wall so that allowed us to change our perspective um, we used puppetry in the show um, there is a character who with dementia who was also kind of one of those um, 
Mr. Fantastic types, like big, long limb, mm. limb, stretchy limbs. So his mind would wander and his limbs would wander throughout. So we would have a long limb enter a scene where That's the nurses right. are talking. And That's awesome. Yeah. So so and then and then one of the nurses, you know, has to kind of bundle this arm up and handle it while it's groping her <laughs> and feeling around her face. And so you know, so it really physicalizes this, the the daily life of being a caregiver and like yeah. the the physicalness of it. Yeah. How do you, uh, how, so you, you said you do about four original productions uh, per season. Yeah. How do you decide what the productions are going to be about? That depends on the production. So with Superhero Old Folks Home, that was one that I had in my soul and mind for a long time. And I, I, I employ this technique of talking to people I trust of lots of different disciplines. And if the idea has traction, then I trust it. If yeah. people are, 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 they are, are smiling and getting it, jumping yeah. on board, having ideas right away, then I know I've got something that, that will grow beyond me. I, I, um, I rely on collaboration because I'll always get something far more nuanced or rich or deeper or in a totally different direction than I would have imagined on my own. Mm -hmm. So it really, it starts in communication with different members of the community. Now, in Superhero Old Folks Home, I had a, a desire to also include non-traditional bodies. Um, so I worked with a couple of uh, dancers from a, a company called Wobbly Dance and they're disabled dancers. And what we realized is an automatic wheelchair is like 400 pounds, 450 pounds. So like, it's a great ballast for aerial work. So if you hook up rigging to it and run it through a mechanical advantage like a pulley system, oh, wow. you can use the, the traveling of the wheelchair in one direction to hoist, raise, or lower someone on the other end of the That's line. Amazing. That's so, really yeah, amazing. Yeah, so Yulia was the dancer in the chair, and then we took um, her partner, Eric, and uh, who has limited use of his legs, and we put him in an aerial harness. And so he could rise and, and lower in the vertical space when she entered and left the physical space and uh, the horizontal space. So she was the doctor and he was the top half of like a medical robot. And so he had another performer basically under his feet. And so he could get really, really tall or shrink down really small depending on the weight that was carried by the wheelchair. And then that physical relationship between the doctor and the wheelchair and her robot allowed them to treat the client, you know, the patient. That's really cool. Yeah, and so that kind of came out through experimentation. Uh, we were pretty sure we could make the chair work. It was really heavy. We were pretty sure we had the police that would allow for the mechanical advantage. So we started just there. We were in, in rehearsal just playing, messing around, seeing how much tolerance Eric had for the harness. And, you know, he was new to harness work. Um, but he's an experienced dancer, so it, it worked really well. And um, and so Yulia didn't have to carry a role as... Um, as an actor so much as a physical presence as the, the doctor, and we used a voiceover to carry the doctor's mm -hmm. thoughts. So very like collage. But that all came, came out of, um, that scene work was about uh, sort of the nature of bodies and how they heal and how they age. And so the, the text kind of came out of stuff that felt essential to me. And the movement came out of what was possible in the room. So that's an example. Uh, when we're working with our youth companies, we really try to get them to plant the seeds rather than to, to, you know, to grow on a seed that we planted. In the last few years, I've been encouraged by our executive director to come up with a seasonal theme, and so that's a classic thing for theaters to do. We've been sort of late adopters at it, um, and so that. So, for example, this year our theme is stranger than fiction. So we're um, exploring. You know, uh, apparent truths and shared shared belief systems and uh, empirical 
data, all of that is sort of where we can draw, you know, personal stories, where we can draw our material. So that's a little bit of a container, but I don't know if we'll end up with shows that are like the history of women in flight, mm -hmm. or if we'll end up with something that's more like my personal story as yeah. told by 18, you know, teenagers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but what we do in rehearsal is we do a lot of skill development, um, physical skill development, working on the core strength, integrating the limbs, flexibility, as well as reading impulse in others, learning group impulse exercises, um, weight sharing exercises, taking responsibility for other people's bodies in a, yeah. in a healthy and safe manner, learning partner acrobatics. And then all the while doing little devising techniques, saying, okay, here's the little, um, you know, here's a, a thing we studied. Today we studied um, stillness and takes, right? So here we are practicing just what, what tension involves from two performers not really moving much on yeah. stage. And then small mov movements mean a lot. And so we start in that small space. And then we say, okay, go into your smaller groups and build something using those tools. And then invariably somebody will come up with this really great thing about flirtation or discomfort or an elevator or whatever some recognizable human experience and then we say okay let's build on that we all agreed that was rich yeah. let's go back in and see what happens there and then maybe it becomes some absurdist farcical thing in an elevator maybe it becomes how we have no idea what's really going on inside other people when we're even when we're standing right next to them so um so the the, the theater really follows the individuals in the room and i think that that's the the key to real success in devised theater, but also has been the hallmark of the work here since before I was a director, which is there's something greater in the room when we combine all these ideas and skills yeah. together, and we won't know exactly what it is. We often know what it isn't. When it's not working, we can yeah. see it. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so there's a lot of faith in the process that you'll just, that you will arrive somewhere that is either old old material that you know for the first time again or is someplace really new and and uh it's devising in its truest form it, it really is yeah. and and it's a recognition that that this the sum will be greater than the parts because you'll slip out this idea and somebody else will roll with it uh, uh, we're working on an idea f for this this truth we're calling it the truth project right now but f for the new work that i'm developing i'm still in conversation with people we haven't really gotten into the the room to play yet but one person said, well, a person with a circus strong woman experience said, well, I was thinking somebody could break cinder blocks on my, like, torso while I'm sharing really vulnerable things about myself. Does that seem? I was like, yeah, that seems <laughs> really rich. Let's, let's definitely not leave that one off the yeah. table, right? Yeah. Um, and then who holds the hammer? You know, like, what will they look yeah. like? And then what will that tell us? Who in the project wants to hold the hammer? And that will help inform whatever that piece turns into. Um, yeah. That's great. That sounds uh, sounds awesome. Like yeah. Just putting faith in the actors and the, the bodies that you have, because that that's what you're presenting, right? Right. Or I take I take a look at a trapeze itself. So the trapezes we use here are non-traditional circus trapezes. They're a wooden dowel and they're tied with a, a polyester and nylon rope. And so I did a thought experiment not long ago and just tried to go, okay, what are the ingredients for a trapeze? You need phytoplankton. You need like you need. Um, years of engineering experience. You need like these supply chains. You need a carabiner made of aluminum, which is you know smelted from bauxite that somebody had to dig out of the earth somewhere. Like all of these supply chains lead to the trapeze, and then who gets access to it? Very few people. So if you carry your knowledge of the supply chains and those who suffer along them into your exploration of trapeze, maybe you can 
inform it with something that you otherwise wouldn't have seen there. And I think a big challenge of keeping theater alive right now is that art is in competition with entertainment, and entertainment is really accessible. And I don't really think that they have to be exclusive, and I think, you know, good art history can be really entertaining, and entertain. there is an art to entertainment, but they ended up at sort of different ends. Yeah. And so finding finding meaning in a way that doesn't turn off your audience, I think, is a, is a good challenge, mm-hmm. it's a good limitation. Yeah. Um, and, and when I look at a question like, where, where did all the ingredients come from, that, that provides, uh, I think, a rich, uh, rich question to, to ask. And then I look at something like tethered arts it, itself. So if you have a single point tethering you to the ceiling, that thing is always going to want to return. It's, it's, it's a self-centering mm. device. And that's an interesting metaphor because we're self-centering devices. Yeah, like yeah. you can't stand still without constantly pulling yourself back to the middle. Yep. So then what kind of metaphor does that supply? So if I give that to a person of color and then that is a metaphor for the thing that they can't escape, right? Mm-hmm. It's always going to draw you back, but can you leverage it? Can you leverage where that thing is pulling you back to give you momentum, to swing around, to become a circle, to become an irregular oval? How is that affected when you put another mass in between you and your return point? If I put another person between you and your self-centering point, what does that tension provide? What if someone's pulling you from your self-centering point? What tension does that provide? And and just looking at those, again, that self-story making that comes up in this in the mind will start to make sense of this physical relationship then i might add words on top of that but i might not have to so last year in our youth performance company we had a member who for health reasons had to leave and it was it had a really strong effect on especially some of the performers and we ended up doing a piece with an aerial harness and one girl hanging from the ceiling uh and the other three could affect her but she could choose how much she was being affected. And so it was, it was sort of this, for me, the metaphor looked like different friends reaching out in different ways mm-hmm. and what effect they were having. And when they all three combined to be a physical surface that the person on the aerial apparatus could use to bound off of, to interact with, to climb up on, to flow around, to be pushed by into, into flight, all sorts of great metaphors came up and and so then I didn't feel like we needed to explain to anyone in the audience what it was about and I heard so many different interpretations that's yeah I love that piece about mental health oh is that what it was about yeah. oh I love that piece <laughs> that was about family dynamics yeah. oh is that what it was about yeah. I love that piece that was about relationships between girl friends you know yeah. like okay yeah that's know? when you rely on the physicality and then use minimal minimal text or yeah. whatever like only the ne- the necessary text I really the th- something I really love about theater is everyone puts their own experience into into what they see and that's like that's a perfect especially with just movement focus like it's yeah. almost that in its purest form and then if you so we did a superhero folks so we we had fun uh, hooking a, a trapeze up to a harness so that the the performer we turned the trapeze into a giant like aerial battle axe so the performer could like fly around on their oh, axe cool. and that performer happened to be an also had opera in their in their wheelhouse and so we we worked with a local um uh, writer who writes original opera and we made this sort of false uh, Scandinavian gibberish like ancient proto-Norse <laughs> um, language for her to sing and she pretty much came up with herself actually uh, and then um, and then the next time we mounted actually the most recently we did with a, uh, a transgender guy and so he also had opera experience so we were able to kind of carry this forward and then you get to see someone flying around 
singing. You know, it was great. It was really cool. powerful, yeah. really challenging for the performer, yeah. but kind of took you to a new place. And so then I was like, okay, I've never worked with opera before. And most of the people in my audience were fairly opera ignorant, I would say. Yeah. And yet now you're like listening to this five minute aria and maybe it's a little more accessible because you get to watch someone fly around and then get attacked in like a big aerial, um, you know, yeah. aerial combat, yeah. <laughs> physical combat piece happen, it's which is a very satisfying to, yeah. um, to see your, to see your aria get, get to hammer on somebody. But, um, <laughs> yeah, so I think, I mean, a, a big, a big part of it too is like it's, we're a nonprofit. If you're not, if you're not going to be able to connect to joy and enjoyment in making the work, it's going to be a real struggle to, to pay you so little. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think that finding that overlap too for performers where they get an opportunity to explore something or to really be honored for the discipline that they've spent so much time building, but then also try something new and lend it to this other idea or, and then, and, and when we did that, when we did the aerial opera thing, I mean, the, the guy who was the foil who got beat up, you know, he was a circus performer with a lot of experience and he had great ideas uh, that just wouldn't have emerged if I was saying, well, now I want you to swing the axe like this and then you take a duck and the, you know, like the, the interplay between them led us to a place I wouldn't have invented myself I can't even really take credit for doing anything other than getting people in the room. Yeah. Which know. is still a massive part of it. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's no like kidding. Part. Yeah. <laughs> you get the people in the room. That's the big challenge. Yeah. Um, what, what would you say, this is, I'm shifting gears a little bit, but uh, what would you say to someone who is interested in you know, circus movement, like what, what you do here at the theater, but is a, a, a bit nervous about maybe like, their own ability or right. like trying to get it, like maybe they like oh well what if I'm not good enough right, like, right. what if I don't have the skills like that sort of thing I mean 15 responses leap to mind one is I know professional circus artists who feel the same way yeah like <laughs> I mean I think there's a lot of self-confidence you can build through discipline of all kinds but also you know the voice is the voice is the voice and you got your internal voice and you can have dialogues with it but it's going to be there so carry it with you don't you know don't wait for the voice to go away to jump in <laughs> um you know i would say come here if you're in, if you're anywhere near portland but um you know I've, i'm of two minds one is that the wheel's been invented a lot of times so if you can find teachers anywhere uh you know that that there's that old axiom the teacher gets their student when the student's ready and the teacher's ready you'll find each other um but you know really seeking someone who you respect and trust to care because it's it's about getting outside your comfort zone right like you have to get in that sweet spot that's outside your comfort zone but not in your panic zone where yeah. you can still challenge yourself and learn but um finding teachers or finding communities where you see it and, and one of the things about circus arts right now is it's much more visible and de rigueur and i think um I know that our school is really committed to adaptability and inclusivity, and I don't think we're the only people doing that. But that, that's, it's hard to find the, the right fit. Um, you could just have to go around and look. And the other component is a lot of traditional circus artists um, learn through apprenticeship or are even self-taught. You know, a juggler is an introvert, spends their time in their room juggling things, that's and then suddenly someone sees, right? <laughs> someone sees it and says, wait, that goes, that goes out now. That yeah. needs to be shared. Um, same thing with a handstand, you know, the, the handstand artists I know tend to be, have an introverted streak where they can spend time with themselves just going upside down, going upside down, going upside down. Um, so, you know, that I think that both things are true. I mean, somebody invented acrobatics without a teacher and they got hurt a lot. And so now you can learn acrobatics without that learning curve, but you can also explore. And 
Um, and find where people are doing it. Look for people who are doing it. Go see it when it goes through town. Uh, yeah. Do, do, is there any other movement theaters in Portland, or is this like? Well, yes. I mean, so there's there's a couple examples of companies that do combinations of really physical based work with mask work. Uh, there's a company in town called Tempos that does um, a lot more hybridization of. Uh, what I would I think of as concert dance or modern dance with circus arts and narrative so they use very little language um, sometimes mask work but very very physicalized um, they had a great piece in which uh, a woman just wandered all over the room using other people's bodies to step up on things and mm -hmm. get, be carried around and she was just following a glowing orb that was being puppeted by someone else and so it was really just about her attention watching this thing to me as the viewer it was about her attention and then the landscape was facilitated by other people and so that you know that's a totally different company working in a similar yeah. kind of way um, I'm seeing more and more there's a company in Seattle that does really similar work acrobatic conundrum so yeah I think it's becoming more typified to see um, to see narrative I mean that that's sort of if you look up the term um, you know Cirque Nouveau or um, you know, modern circuses are, now that they're doing away with animal acts are really going in this direction that has has long been kind of U European circus format, which is to really explore emotional states, uh, not just be spectacle based, but also really try to transport yeah. audiences somewhere. Cirque du Soleil is a great example of, of really really brought bring that to the you know forefront. They used to they used to be a scrappy touring company, you know, and they they, <laughs> they hooked into something that was really valuable for people. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, what does Echo provide for the company? Or, I'm sorry. What does Echo provide for the community that other companies don't? Like, like what? Why is this theater here? <laughs> yeah, I think it's here partly because of the community. I mean, um, it's sustained as all nonprofits are by by people buying in. Um, but I think what's here is partly related to the fact that you you do get to see different kinds of bodies on stage. So you see different representation and it makes you think maybe there's room for me. Um, we're, we're, we're pretty overt about seeking and being open to people who are not um, necessarily going to automatically see themselves in, in other programming. Uh, that said, I mean, there's, there's marvelous work going on all over Portland. Um, but I think that, I think it has something to do with our deep curriculum. Like that the circus arts, the acrobatics, the performing, it's, it's all a package for something Else, and I think that something else is saying that there's there's an acceptance of who you are, who you come in as already is is enough for us to really get something cooking, and um, and we will give you more tools for exploring that self, but um, and I, and I think that that's a that's a fundamental difference. Uh, we are interested in who you may become. But we're really interested in who you are, yeah. and we're pretty sure that who you are is going to really inform the student next to you and the teacher. And I think our staff is really conduct composed of people who are lifelong learners, and so they're really interested in further development yeah. by communal exploration. Exactly. And when you facilitate, uh, when you facilitate the refinement of others, you are also facilitating the refinement of yourself. I believe. Right. Well, especially in a. Uh, I mean, I think teaching is a creative art. It's a performance art, but it's also a puzzle. Mm 
Like you, <laughs> you have to unlock someone else's way of learning by unlocking your communication. And so you do have to refine yourself. Um, my, my, one of my early mentors, Robin, said, you could teach anybody a cartwheel if you're sneaky enough. And, and <laughs> I, I thought that. That, was, that was a neat way of approaching, like, don't, don't let them think they're learning a cartwheel because they might say, well, I'm an adult. I, I've, I never learned a cartwheel as a kid. I'm never going to learn one. Well, can you learn to bear weight on straight arms? Can you learn to tip your head upside down and look at the world? You know, you can, you can do all these things. Then in combination, maybe you can do a cartwheel. Yeah. Now that we're exploring um, really non-traditional bodies, so how does a person in a wheelchair do a cartwheel? And there's this lovely story I heard at Danceability and, um, about a school performance in which this performer named Emery Blackwell, uh, who's in a wheelchair, uh, basically asked the audience, would you like to see me do fly across the room? And kids say yeah 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 and he says, so, okay so close your eyes and picture me floating up and flying across the room and settling down and, okay how many of you saw that you know everybody's hand goes up so I think that there, there's also an interesting exploration there if we um, go beyond our, our typical thought of what you're going to learn when you come in to learn a cartwheel that, that's about you and what, what you're learning but then you also get to be in this environment which you see other people struggling and overcoming and you get buoyed up by the 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 class around you or the teacher around you and so I think the big question mark and challenge for us is how do we bring even more people in who don't see themselves here or haven't seen themselves represented and not um, not just give them a ride but give them some agency give them some impact over what's happening in the room and um, and by keeping that question alive in our staff meetings in our teacher trainings um, and hearing stories back about what's working, we just continue to adapt and evolve our, our process. And so, um, and so I, I'd like to think we're not the only people doing that, but I think we've gotten good at explaining that that's the story. And um, we've been finding more and more people with uh, neurodiversity coming into our programming, uh, kids who are coming because an occupational therapist said, hey, we heard about this place, and they seem to just accommodate and incorporate people you know, um, inclusively. And so that work gets around, and then we learn more from those folks. And so uh, one of the things we've done a lot here is invented an aerial apparatus, exploring, like, could we make a structure that's shaped like a bicycle? What properties would it have if you hung it from one point or two mm -hmm. points? And, and then what story does that tell when you put it in the air? And, um, and so now we're looking at, like, okay, so what, what forms of adaptive equipment could get atypical bodies in the air? And how mm -hmm. could they have agency in the air? How could they move themselves in a way? How could you suspend their body in a way that they don't normally get to experience. And then how can that be in relationship with an audience or a, another classmate or another dancer or an actor? And I think that's a really exciting, big open question mark. Yeah, yeah, that's really exciting. Uh, we're a little bit past the half hour, and I always like to ask, um, do you, you want to talk about anything in terms of movement theater or directing or like the administrative side or really anything uh, that we haven't talked about yet? Well, I guess I would just say that um, in uh, in getting to talk about all the creative work, there's also all of this uh, detail of physical work that has to go into the maintenance of a space like this. We're in an old silent movie house um, built in uh, 1911, and so it's an old building with ongoing maintenance issues. You have to... Uh, secure for the safety of your students and performers so there's regular you know safety inspections happening upkeep of materials um, as I've learned now as a manager I mean being creative director has brought me into a position of, of management 
just learning the intricacies of nonprofit management is a huge learning curve and um, learning what my strengths are inside that. Um, so what I really appreciate um, about my opportunity here is not only am I in like the hometown that I grew up in, but I also got my free arts training in from the public school. Um, but I just have this opportunity to have a very diverse work day. I don't have to stay in one mode. And for me as a neurodiverse person, uh, that's really, really become essential in ableizing me in the world. And so I feel just super grateful and I feel called to, to do that for as many people as I can while I get the energy. <laughs> yeah, that's great, no, that's great. Uh, what, what advice would you have for someone that's in a similar position to you, like maybe just, just now assuming the role of a creative director for a nonprofit? Like what, what things would you tell that person to make, to get some of the like nitty gritty beginning right. stuff out of the way? Well, what's worked already? Like yeah. what, why is it still sustained? What's gotten you to the point where you're in this position? So really, whether that's your communication systems, your support systems, uh, your community, the narrative you have, like what's already really working? And try not to, try not to fiddle too much with what already is working, <laughs> even though you're a creative person. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, for, for me, being a staunch believer in collaboration, like finding out what strengths are there because you're, you're gonna have more success um, with that knowledge. Um, I, I guess my, my advice, if, if you're already in, if you're just stepping into this position, you already made it. Like it's <laughs> so rare. If you think this sounds like something you wanna do but you don't know how to do it, my advice would be go where you find people that are doing what you really like and stay there a while. Like whatever you have to do to be there. there there's so many examples of people I know who went in and swept the floor for a while until they became a little more essential, until they could parlay for work trade and do classes, until they became an apprentice teacher. Like, there's just, there's everything's a good old boy system, hopefully becoming a good old people system. Yeah. Um, and so everything's relationship-based. So plant yourself around the people you admire and then just become indispensable. Stick it out. Yeah. It, I know that that's a refrain that I'm not alone making, but I also know that we're in a time period in which people really desire immediacy, and it takes a long time. Yeah, you have to build relationships, and you have to gain trust, and you have to take risks. The idea of deep work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I think really knowing, like, being willing to learn what you actually are good at. Yeah, like we love this narrative. I have kids. I love the narrative that you could be whatever you imagine but also you're a little bit stuck with who you are and that's enough there's something really yeah. great yeah. that's going to emerge from you accepting your limitations and yeah. using those to craft yeah. I mean no creative project works without limitations exactly really in fact I think those limitations uh, offer the most creative solutions and then you you're provided with these things that you would have never thought yeah I don't actually think you're doing creative work if you're not dealing with limitations <laughs> yeah. you, you know probably yeah. and, and I think that goes to all kinds of creative work whether you're trying to I mean I think that we, we're really missing something in this um, in 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 not understanding how essential teaching art and creativity to people is if you want scientists, if you want thinkers who can invent, you need inventive thinking. You need dabblers and doodlers and people who, who use the margins differently and you need, you need people with this ability to toy with things to develop novel approaches to things. You're, you're just, 
you you need it and and when I think about my experience with science, you know, I was reproducing experiments that the book already told me would do exactly what the experiment led to, and it wasn't experimenting. But in my art class, I was experimenting. In my dance classes, in my improv classes, I was really experimenting, getting results, checking my results against others, doing peer review. Did this work? Yeah. Did it communicate? What did it communicate? And then taking those findings and and building on them, you know? So I I... I don't see a separation between the, 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 the heart of scientific work and the heart of creative work because it requires us to go for what is actually there and still try to achieve something new and solve a problem. And if you don't know what the problem is, then don't do the work yet. <laughs> like you can dabble, you can play, play with the clay, but until you know what problem you're trying to solve, it's not going to form your work. And so what question is really important? You know, what answer do you really want to know? Or what can't you live without? Like what has to be in the world that's not there? And then go build that. Yeah. Th those are the important questions. It's, about, it's more important than having notoriety or making something that is meaningful to other people. Like yeah. it's, that's what I, I think it's about. Yeah, that's, well, Aaron, thank you so much for sitting down with me. It was a pleasure. This was delightful. Yeah. Uh, if anyone is looking for the Echo Theater yep. uh, online or somewhere, or if they're in Portland, uh, do you have any plugs that you can give to the listener? Yes, well, Echo Theater, T-H-E-A-T-E-R, pdx.org. You can see um, photographs and footage of our work. Uh, you can you can look up Echo Theater on YouTube and see clips from shows. Um, if you're in Portland, drop by our theater, take a class. Uh, we'll be doing we'll be presenting work, um, new work in January of 2018. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, yeah, come check us out. All right, and I like to end my podcast with this. Can you give me one recommendation of anything at all? Uh, so like a book, a movie, uh, maybe a theatrical thing, a way of life, a quote, anything. Yes. <laughs> um, hmm, it's hard to yeah, say. Yeah, maybe the hardest question one. on that the podcast. It is a hard question, yeah. <laughs> uh, read Mary Oliver poems. Okay. Okay, that's great. Yeah, that's great. I, I actually am unfamiliar. I've heard her name before, but I'm unfamiliar with her. Oh, uh, so. yeah. Okay. Then definitely read Mary Oliver's poetry. <laughs> okay, that is brilliant. Aaron, again, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Down. I look forward to uh, hearing more of your work. Yeah, it was, uh, it was great. Uh, if you want to find this podcast, uh, you can find it on Facebook and SoundCloud and iTunes. And listener, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you have an excellent rest of your day.